It was a little more than a year ago that Connie and I took a week-long cruise out of Boston, up the New England coast into Canada, and then back to Boston. We had a great time. The stops were interesting. We visited some places that neither of us had ever been to. But what made that trip all the more enjoyable was the fact that we took it with my five siblings and their spouses. We'd never done that before. As a family, we hope to do it again. And because most of us had never been to Boston before, we all flew into the city a few days early to see the sights. My niece happened to be attending graduate school there, and she was our tour guide. And one of the places that we definitely had on our to-see list was a plaque that had been erected in the city in honor of a famous event that took place in that city in the mid-1800s. This is a picture, if I can get this to work. Why isn't it working? Got it on? If you would move advance it, please. Back up one. This is a picture of us in front of that plaque. The next slide shows exactly what, you know what, I was clicking the wrong button, I think. And then again, maybe not. Hmm. Well, if we could try the next one. This is what that plaque says. It says, D.L. Moody, Christian evangelist, friend of man, founder of Northfield Schools, was converted to God in a shoe store on this site, April 21st, 1855. The next slide, please. You know what Billy Graham was to our generation, D.L. Moody was to his. Through his preaching, there were literally tens of thousands of people who came to faith in Jesus Christ. He preached to crowds up to 20 and 30,000. And the next slide is the picture of the man who led him to faith in Jesus Christ. His name was Edward Kimball. Next slide, please. He was a Sunday school teacher. And he was, for the most part, a very timid, soft-spoken man, almost shy. But he was burdened to reach young men with the gospel. He met a young 19-year-old man named Moody, who at the time was untaught and ignorant about the Bible. And Kimball was burdened to talk with him about his eternal soul. And he went to visit Moody at the shoe store where he worked. He admitted that he had an unpolished presentation of the gospel. In fact, he later said that he couldn't even remember exactly what it was that he said to Moody. He just spoke about Christ's love for Moody. And as a result of that witness, D.L. Moody gave his heart to Christ then and there. And he was used mightily by God to reach Thousands upon thousands of people. Next slide. Now I share that story with you to challenge you as I'm challenging myself. To not wait until we have seemingly all the answers to everybody's possible question. But that we simply overcome our fears and we begin talking to people about Jesus. And I want to suggest from the passage of Scripture that we looked at and read from this morning 
that our text gives us some very, very helpful guidelines for being the kind of witness that God wants to use. And what's interesting about this story is that God uses the most unlikely individual to bring an entire community to Jesus Christ. A woman who was a brand new convert. She'd yet to make a clean break with her sinful past. She was still living with a man outside of marriage. She was a woman who knew almost nothing of sound doctrine. She had no training courses in how to share her faith with others. And yet I want to suggest that she effectively evangelized her entire village for Jesus Christ. And in one of the longest recorded encounters Jesus had in John's Gospel, God puts it here, I believe, to teach us how you and I ought to witness. Now let me set the context for you. In John chapter 4, Jesus is leaving Judea, which is in the south, and he's headed north back to Galilee. And he decides to take a shortcut through the region of Samaria, and he comes to the city of Sychar. And he does so because he has a divine appointment with this woman. As Jesus is making that journey, he is absolutely bone-tired. He's hot, he's thirsty, he's hungry. It's high noon and the disciples have nothing to eat for either themselves or for him. And so while they go into the village shopping, Jesus sits down by a well to drink. And he has an encounter, not with a recent seminary graduate, not with a respectable businessman or a housewife with three kids, a cat and a dog and a mortgage, but rather with a person who, in the opinion of the ancient world, had struck out on no less than three fronts. Number one, she was a Samaritan. Strike one. Number two, she was a woman. Strike two. And finally, she was sexually immoral. Strike three. And yet, notwithstanding these racial, social, and moral liabilities, Jesus amazingly, reaches out to this woman. You know, as I read John chapter 4 this past week, and as I meditated upon it, I loved the fact that Jesus didn't make his point in one of the many synagogues of his day. He didn't sit comfortably under the amber glow of stained glass windows and lecture a large crowd of intellectually elite about the nature of God and what it means to properly worship him. Instead, as you read John chapter 4, you find that Jesus sat down on the edge of a whale water in the middle of a hot, sun-soaked day, and he strikes up a conversation with a total stranger. Now, in order for us to fully appreciate this, I need to remind you about who the Samaritans were. The key thing to remember is that there was no love loss between the Jews and the Samaritans. In fact, Jews in the first century looked upon the Samaritans as ceremonially defiled, racially impure, and religiously heretical. And here's why. Some 700 years before Christ, in the year 722 B.C., the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. 
and they deported the vast majority of their citizens. The remnant of those who stayed behind did the unthinkable and the unforgivable, and, they, and that is they intermarried with the pagan Gentiles. And as such, they were considered half-breeds by the Jews who were determined only to marry other Jews. But then the Samaritans took it one step further. They insisted that true worship should take place in Shechem and not in Jerusalem. And as such, they built their own temple there on Mount Gerizim. And additionally, they only acknowledged the Pentateuch as their scriptures. And so there developed over time this very intense racial and religious animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. You know, today we refer to the story told in Luke 10 as the parable of the Good Samaritan. But the fact of the matter is that most Jews in the first century would have considered that a contradiction in terms. There was no such thing as a Good Samaritan. What was going on back then would be similar to what went on in this country during the days of segregation. When blacks and whites were forced to use different water fountains and restrooms and restaurants and motels and hotels. And what happens here is that Jesus interacts with this woman, and in the course of the conversation, she comes to the realization, and Jesus tells her that he's the Messiah. In fact, look at verse 26 of John 4. Your Bible should be open. It says, Then Jesus declared, I am the one speaking to you. I am he. She'd ask the question, Are are you the Messiah? And he says, Yep. I sure enough am. And what happens is she runs back, leaving her water pot, and she runs to the village and she tells the men who normally would have laughed at her, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And she asked the question, could this be the Christ? Could this be the Messiah? And as a result, they stream out of the city to meet Jesus. He has an interaction with them, and they're so impressed, they invite him to stay for two days in their city, which is something, by the way, that he never did, at least recorded in Scripture, in any Jewish village. And the end result is, in verse 42, it says that when they heard all of this for themselves, they finally came to the realization that we know, verse 42, right at the end, we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. See, what's interesting is that this woman is like everyone else without Christ. She was miserable in her current condition. And when Jesus told her that he was the Messiah, she had to, decide, had to decide. She had to make a choice. Is what he's telling me true or is what he's telling me false? And she believed in Jesus. You say, well, how do you know that? It doesn't specifically say that. Well, we know it because of her response to the revelation that Jesus gave of himself to her. And because of the results that came from her witness. What did she do? Well, she immediately went and she told others about Jesus, resulting in them believing on him. Now, what I want to do is I want to break this down into three lessons that you and I can learn 
about becoming more effective witnesses for Christ. What are the type of people that Jesus uses to reach other people? Let me suggest, number one, God uses the witness of those who are excited about Jesus. God uses the witness of those who are excited about Jesus. Jesus told this woman that he was the Messiah. Just as the disciples were returning from the village with the food that they had brought for their lunch, and we're told in verse 27, just then his disciples returned and they were surprised to find him talking with this woman. And they're so dumbfounded, they're so taken aback that no one asks, Jesus, what do you want? Or why in the world are you talking with this woman? For in their surprise and amazement is really an understatement. This was just so unheard of in that day. And their amazement came from two sources, the cultural conditioning and their failure to understand Jesus' mission. Culturally, in the first century, it was a taboo for a Jewish man to speak with a woman, much less a Samaritan woman. And here's where the real kicker came in, much less a woman with questionable morals. This woman had no less than three strikes against her. And Jesus is here talking to her. It's a recipe for a citywide scandal. Now, ladies, please be gentle with me, okay? I'm just the messenger. But back in the first century, some, not all, but some, Jewish leaders taught that it was at best a waste of time to talk with a woman, even your wife. The mindset in the first century was simply this. What possibly could you learn from interacting with a woman? They said that it was a diversion from the more important issues of life, such as the study of the Torah. And to talk to a woman could possibly lead you to going to hell. And here's a real head popper for you. Some rabbis went so far as to suggest that teaching your daughter the Torah was as inappropriate as selling her into prostitution. Wow. And here Jesus is talking with this woman in public. No doubt it could have easily led to gossip. You know, it's additionally, some Jewish leaders taught that the Samaritan women were perpetually unclean. And so here's Jesus interacting with this woman. The disciples come on the scene and it absolutely blows them out of the water. And they said nothing. Some have suggested that their silence was out of deference to Jesus. But I would argue there were other times when... They spoke up. But I think what might be very helpful for us to realize here is that when, when Jesus is interacting with these, this woman and these disciples are so blown out of the water thinking, why in the world are you talking to her? The disciples should have looked at their own selves first. 
Friend, have you ever stopped to think that none of us is any more worthy of heaven than this sinful woman? And Jesus should have been talking to her because she had a great need. But I think second, the fact that they didn't question Jesus should teach us if there are times when we don't understand something in Scripture or something that Jesus might be doing in our lives, the best thing is not to murmur against God or question him, but rather simply wait in silence until he reveals the matter to us more fully. Which is exactly what these men did. Verse 28 says that this woman then leaving her water jar, she went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Friends, she's so excited that she just rushes off and she leaves her water pot there. By the way, this wasn't a little tiny water jug, you know, sort of like a canteen. This word water pot was the same one that was used in uh, the marriage feast at Cana of Galilee where Jesus turned the water into wine. This was a big, good-sized jar. And she's so excited, and she probably didn't want to be burdened carrying it, that she rushes off to the village to tell everyone and anyone who would listen about her amazing encounter with this stranger who had uncovered her past. Notice she goes back to the town and she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, obviously, that's a bit of an exaggeration. But you know what? She's excited. She looked at the Christ and the interaction that she had had with him. And it just blew her out of the water. You know, I love the fact, and we're not going to have the time to look at this in detail, but as you look at the encounter that Jesus had with this woman, he wasn't accusatory. He wasn't condescending towards her. He wasn't patronizing. He treated this woman with respect. Normally, she never would have brought up anything about her sordid past, And Jesus doesn't bring it up to condemn her or shame her. He's not trying to get some scintillating tidbit regarding her personal life. Jesus mentions the fact that this woman has had five husbands and the man she's living with now is not her husband. She's just shacking up with him. And he mentions this. He talks about her immorality as a doorway into her heart as a way of exposing to herself the idolatry of her soul, and it worked. And her heart was open and tender. And when she found forgiveness in Jesus, what was she? She was excited. And she rushes off and she begins telling everybody she can meet that she's met Jesus. And I love her interaction with these men. Back then, the testimony of a woman, much less a woman of ill repute, was disregarded and ignored. You remember Pastor Ken a few weeks ago when he preached for me, when they looked at Mark 16 and the resurrection account and the fact that women were part of the testimony there. He pointed out very capably that women... The testimony of a woman was not accepted in a court of law. 
This woman was notorious in a small village for her string of divorces and her current live-in boyfriend. And so most of the men in the village would have avoided her completely. Obviously, if word got back to their wives that, you know, they were talking to her, they would have been in the doghouse, and yet this woman comes there. And as she interacts with the people of that village, she's so convincing that they listen to her. Why was she so effective? Well, she was excited that she had met the Savior, the Messiah. And by the way, and I love this, and it's difficult to see it in the English, but look at verse 29. It says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And then she asked the question, could this be the Messiah? It's almost as if she's saying, you know, now you guys are the smart ones. You, you, you know, help me out on this. Is this really the Christ? I would imagine if she had stated it boldly that she'd met Christ, they would have had a good laugh. They would have ignored her and gotten back to her conversation. But her question is framed in such a way that it piqued their curiosity. Could we see the next slide? There's a great quote that I came across. It said, she deferred to the self-assumed wisdom of the men <laughs> by letting them come to their own conclusion. Isn't that great? That's the way she came. You know, the, the, the way to an effective witness is oftentimes simply to ask a good question. And this woman asked one of the best. And what you and I need to do as we interact with people, as we're excited about Jesus, is we need to ask questions. We can ask somebody, do you have any kind of spiritual belief system? Who do you think Jesus is? What part does faith play in your life? Where would you say you are in your spiritual, spiritual pilgrimage? And we ask people questions, and that's what this woman was doing here. And then as you ask questions and you build a relationship with people, you're then able to take them to the Scriptures. And as good as her questions were, the main reason this woman's witness was so effective is that she was excited about Jesus. And you know what? These people in the village could see the change in this woman. They knew her by reputation. It's safe to say before they never would have dared to interact with her. She probably didn't even speak to other women in the village. That was the reason she went to the well that day at high noon. Normally when you would go to the well to draw water, you would go early in the morning or at dusk. But this woman, she goes there at noon. And Jesus is there. And here she is telling these men about what Jesus has done for her. She was excited. She was exuberant. And the change in her excitement about Jesus were evident. And that's what made her testimony so convincing. You know, it's been said that evangelism and salesmen can have a lot of things that are different, but they also have something that's in common. And one of the features of a successful salesman is they're excited about their product. 
You know, I remember when Connie and I went and took a, a tour of a, one of those timeshares. The guy that was doing it obviously was just doing it to stay busy. He was retired. It was over in Colorado. I forget what, which resort. It was Vail or Aspen, one of those places. And we were acting like big shots. This was a number of years ago. And, you know, the guy was not at all high pressure. It was wonderful. And at the end, he sort of looked at us and he said, you don't want to buy this, do you? And I said, no, we're not, we're not at all interested. He said, that's fine. Just go right ahead. He wasn't at all convincing that what he was selling was a good product. You know, when your salesman is indifferent and lazy and listless, you don't often buy his product. But you know what? When that guy's out there and he's just saying, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, you've got to buy this, you want to buy it. You know, it's fascinating to contrast John 3 where Jesus encounters Nicodemus with his encounter in John 4 with this Samaritan woman. Nicodemus was educated. The Samaritan woman was unschooled. Nicodemus was a powerful and influential man in the community. The Samaritan woman would hardly have been noticed by anyone. Nicodemus was highly respected. The Samaritan woman was despised. Nicodemus was an Orthodox Jewish man. The Samaritan woman was an immoral, heretical woman. Here was a woman who knew far less than Nicodemus, who had a far worse background than his, but she was a far bolder witness than Nicodemus. In fact, the only time you find Nicodemus again in the Gospel of John is at the crucifixion when they're taking the body of Jesus down from the cross and Nicodemus is there to assist in the burial of Jesus. This woman was bold. She was excited. And she testified about her own experience with Jesus. Now here's the point. God will use your witness if you have a genuine encounter with the Lord and you're excited about him. That's the kind of witness that God will use. That's the kind of witness that we need to be. Let me suggest secondly... God uses the witness of those who have a harvest mindset. They have a harvest mindset. Again, as you read this account, you find that the disciples arrive back at the well with lunch. They've got the Big Mac and fries, maybe Chick-fil-A, Taco Bell. I'm not sure what it was he was eating that day. But when he gets back and he begins to interact with the disciples, we're told in, in verse 31, it says, Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. We've gone. We've gotten this food. But notice what Jesus says. Verse 32. He says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to him, said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? Did somebody else, you know, give him something to eat? Now notice carefully verse 34. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Friend, Jesus was on a mission. And that mission was to reach lost people. Look at verse 35. 
He says, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. You know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, fellas, you've got to develop a harvest mindset. You need to understand that God is doing in this situation something great. And we need to follow the example of Jesus. We need to break down barriers and reach out to people. We need to have a a harvest mindset. And I think as you read this, you find a number of features that are evident in that harvest mindset. Number one, a harvest mindset puts the will of God in his work above everything else. Jesus says, my food, my task is to do the will of him who sent me. You know what the disciples were focused on? Lunch. They were interested in their stomachs. They were interested in the temporal. And Jesus was interested in doing the Father's will and accomplishing what the Father sent him here to do, which to seek and to serve, seek and to save the lost, according to Luke 19:10. Food and drink were secondary. Reaching lost people was his primary mission. And that was his focus for three years. And he succeeded so much so that at the end of his life in John 17, 4, he said, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And I think part of our problem is that we're a lot like the disciples. We focus on the temporal We're focusing on the physical, and we're clueless as to the eternal and the spiritual. Listen, a harvest mindset will put the will of God in his work, which is reaching lost people above everything else. Secondly, a harvest mindset focuses on sowing and reaping. Look at verse 35. He says, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes, look at the field, they're ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefit of their labor. Friend, we have a focus on sowing and reaping. We need to realize that. And as you look at this, I think Jesus makes four points or four short lessons on sowing and reaping. Number one, the harvest may be ready in situations where you would least expect it. You don't sow a crop and reap a harvest the next day. It takes time for a crop to grow. That's true in the case of this woman, that it was an instant harvest, or so it would seem. This woman was about as unlikely a prospect for evangelism as you can imagine. She came to the well not at all interested in spiritual things. Her task was to draw water until Jesus turned the conversation in the direction of the spiritual And he was willing to cross cultural taboos and take the time to talk to this messed up Samaritan woman whose life was in chaos. 
And here's the point, friend. You never know how God is going to use your witness with someone who you may consider an unlikely prospect for the gospel. So we need to be ready. Second, I think that Jesus is teaching us here that there's a great reward and great joy in doing God's work. He says in verse 36, he says, even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. I love that. There's joy when we recognize that there's a, a partnership in this whole whole process of, of reaching lost people. Thirdly, we need to realize that to reap a harvest seed has to be sown. It has to be sown. He says in verse 37, he says, one sows, another reaps is true, and I sent you to reap what you have not worked, for others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Can I state the obvious? There is no reaping without prior sowing. If we are going to reach lost people, friend, we've got to build relationships with people and we've got to sow the seed of the gospel. And I think one of the reasons we fail to reach lost people is we fail to build relationships with lost people. You say, Doug, I don't know too many lost people. Sure you do. The person who cuts your hair, who changes the oil in your car, who bags your groceries, who fills your prescription. You know, Connie and I have built a great relationship with the pharmacists at Sam's Club. I don't know what it is, but we've really had a great opportunity to talk to them. Even when they were giving me my flu shot and some of the other shots I've gotten, I've had a great opportunity to share the gospel with them. And we've got to be sowing the seed. And what I want to suggest you do is you, you make a prayer list of who it is you can share the gospel with. Jot down a list of those who don't know Christ with whom you have regular contact and begin praying for their salvation. So to reap a harvest, we have to sow the seed. And number four, you may do the hard work of sowing only to have others reap the harvest. That's a painful lesson to learn sometimes, but it's true. You know, sometimes we want to be that person that leads that individual to Jesus Christ. But you know what? We're in a partnership with other people. And it may be that you are the one who builds that relationship. You share the gospel with that person again and again, and somebody else is going to have the joy of reaping the harvest. It's rare that Someone comes to faith the first time they hear the gospel. But if we keep sharing the gospel with people, if we water the seed that's sown, eventually there'll be that harvest. Next slide, please, if we could. There's one quote I just couldn't help but appreciate so much. It says, Let it be noted that in doing work for Christ and laboring for souls, there are sowers, as well as reapers. The work of the reaper makes far more show than the work of the sower. Next slide. Yet it is perfectly clear that if there was no sowing, there would be no reaping. It is of great importance to remember this, 
The church is often disposed to give an excessive honor to Christ's reapers and to overlook the labors of Christ's sowers. Friend, let's remember that. Let's just make a point of setting out that we're going to be determined that we are just going to sow seed and leave the results to God. One of the things that is so true is that oftentimes many of the missionaries that have gone out have never seen the result of their labors. A perfect illustration of that would be Adoniram Judson who labored his entire life in Burma with hardship and disappointment and little visible fruit. And yet after he died, in Burma today there are over a million Christians who trace their roots back to Adoniram Judson. Now there's one more point I want to make. First, God uses the witness of those who are excited about Jesus. Second, God uses those who have a harvest mindset. And finally, God uses the witness of those who invite others to come to Jesus. Look at verse 39. It says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So that when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And then verse 42, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. You know, there is a foolish saying that's out there that supposedly is attributed to Francis of Assisi who said, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. You know, with all due respect... That has got to be one of the silliest statements ever made. It's absolute nonsense. Friend, presenting the gospel does require a godly lifestyle to back up your words, but it requires words. You've got to talk to people. And when you talk to people, people will respond to your message. And so here's the application. Focus on who Jesus is. Get people to answer the question that Jesus raised in Mark 16, 15, where he said, who do men say that I am? And that's what we need to do. And especially in this valley. I want to be kind when I say this, but it's so easy in this valley to, to get sidetracked into other issues. To go down a rabbit trail and get bogged down with secondary issues. And we have to always bring it back to who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? What do the scriptures teach? So we focus on Jesus, and number two, we invite sinners to come to Jesus. And that's what Jesus did here. This woman said, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. And they went and they saw Jesus. And Jesus talked to them. And they believed. You know what's encouraging as you look at the scriptures over and over and over again? 
The invitation that Jesus gave again and again, and he calls us to give, is come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I want to challenge you on November 10th, just a few weeks from now, on that particular Sunday, we are going to have what we're calling a homecoming Sunday. I'm a little hesitant to use that term in light of the fact that Kanye West is now using it, and we can talk about that some other time, privately, of course. But we're going to call that simply Homecoming Sunday. And what I want to encourage you to do is to invite lost people that Sunday to come. I am working very, very, very hard on having a message that will present the gospel clearly, directly, not in an, in an ugly, confrontational way or any way like that, but just to present the gospel out there that God loves people. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So I want you to begin praying and thinking about that Sunday and who it is that you can invite and that I can invite. I'm not suggesting that everybody you invite will come. But here's my challenge. Don't say no for other people by not bothering to invite them. Next Sunday, we'll have some invitation cards for you to begin to give out to people that Sunday. It's going to be a wonderful outreach Sunday. And we want to see lost people just as we saw here in John chapter 4. Through our witness and our excitement about the gospel, we want to see people come to know Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this reminder from your word that we are to be a witness. We're grateful that you use this seemingly unlikely individual to bring an entire village to Christ. And Father, that's what we want to see happen here. We want to see our church grow through conversion. We want to be able to hear the testimony of people who because of our witness and the witness of others have come to know Christ. And Lord, whether we see the harvest or whether we simply do the sowing, we pray that we would be faithful on both counts. Seal these truths, I pray, to our hearts and lives this morning, for we've asked it in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, Amen.